This episode is brought to you by One House. Learn more about our comprehensive hospitality solutions at one-haus.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We are coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, November 9th, 2016. This is the 123rd episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is one of the key voices in food policy, nutrition, and food education in this country, and I will introduce her in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to stand strong. Always stay true to what you believe in. Sometimes you may be up against the majority or be thrown a curveball or two, but that's just life. No one said it was going to be easy, so don't let challenges get you down. Instead, allow them to motivate you to take action. We can make a difference. As Hillary Clinton said this morning in her concession speech, never stop believing that fighting for what's right is worth it. That's my tip today. Now I'm thrilled to have my guest here. She's calling in. Impressive lady. Her name is Marion Nessel. She's Paulette Goddard professor of nutrition, food studies, and public health at New York University in the department she chaired from 1988 to 2003. Marion is the author of six prize-winning books, including Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, What to Eat, and Soda Politics. Marion has received many awards and honors, including in 2011, Michael Pollan ranked her as the number two most powerful foodie in America, right after Michelle Obama, who's number one on that list. And Mark Bittman ranked her number one on his list of foodies to be thankful for. And I'm very thankful to have her on the show today. So hello, Marianne. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, no, it's it's really great to have you on. Um, Thinking back of of when I met you, it was in 1998 when I started in NYU's food studies program, which was, I believe, in its second year. And um, I remember sitting in your office and meeting, and uh, uh, just it's just an honor to now be doing a show with with you on it as my guest. It's just incredible. Well, how wonderful that you're using your degree in such a terrific way. <laughs> well... Side note, I didn't get the degree. I hate to now go on that. I didn't finish, but I might come back. Um, I have a bunch of credits, but it was an amazing start for me in, 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 in getting into, into the food world, especially in New York City. And I'm very grateful for the experience I had um, at the school and meeting you and the education I did get. So, um, But let's talk, let's talk about how you ended up 
when you how you got your way to NYU because did you set out um, to work in education and in particular in, in food policy and nutrition? Well, I have a doctorate, and that's one of the things that you do with a doctoral degree is you work in education. And my first teaching job was at Brandeis University, um, and I was teaching molecular and cell biology because my doctorate is in molecular biology. And in the uh, seventh year that I was at Brandeis, I was given a nutrition course to teach because students were sitting in in the offices of the department chair saying that they wanted some kind of human biology class in the department. And the department had a rule that you could only teach the same class three years in a row, and I'd been teaching cell biology. Um, and the other rule was that you had to teach anything that that the students needed, whether you knew anything about it or not. And I thought this was a great opportunity to learn something about something I was kind of interested in. It was uh, shortly after Francis Moore Lappe had published Diet for a Small Planet, um, and which is a really important book that talked about how plant-based diets would really be healthier for people and for the planet. She was way ahead of her time. And Linus Pauling had published Vitamin C in the Common Cold, and I was kind of curious to know whether there was anything to his suggestion that you take 10 grams a day of vitamin C, and I thought it would be a good thing to do. So I started preparing the class, and it was like falling in love. I just adored it, and I've never looked back. Yeah, no, you haven't. Um, and then, so this brought... I mean, jumping jumping ahead to what I was talking about with the food studies program, which I believe in 1996 you founded with um, with Clark Wolf, who's actually been a guest on my show too. Um, so, how did that come about? Well, our department had, I should say that I came to NYU to chair Department of Home Economics. That was in 1988. The department was Home Economics and Nutrition. Uh, and the, embedded in that title was a program in food service management, but it was being run as a hotel program. Uh, and not a very good one, I'm afraid. Um, so I didn't, you know, I, my job was to bring the department into the 20th, if not the 21st century, um, in 1988. And it took several years to kind of sort out what was going on and change the name of the department, drop the home economics. We had to close 25 home economics programs that had about 10 students altogether in them. Um, and then the another school at NYU wanted to combine hotel management into their particular school, and there was a big push to do that. So our food service management hotel program was taken away from the department. It was being moved out. Um, and this was going to create a very large loss in revenue for the department. So everybody was feeling really sorry for us about what we were going to do. And I had been traveling with Old Ways Preservation and Exchange Trust and meeting a lot of food writers, um, other academics, and cooks, chefs, at the various meetings that they were holding all over the world. And I was hearing a lot from people about how much they wanted to study about food. 
Boston University had started under Julia Child's um, pressures from Julia, Julia Child had started their gastronomy program, um, and I was kind of jealous of that. I thought we could do something like that, and it would be really useful in New York. Would be a great place to do that. Um, and so Clark and I were at a party, and it was way uptown, and. We just, it was a beautiful night, and we decided to walk down to the village. And by the time we got down to the village, he had said that he could help me develop a food program. And that's what we did. And we went from concept to state approval in nine months, which is pretty spectacular for a university. That's really fast. And the week after the program was approved, for the programs, because it was undergraduate, master's, and doctoral, uh, the week after those programs were approved by New York State, the New York Times wrote about them. And we had people in our office the afternoon that that article came out in the food section, a Wednesday, obviously, uh, holding copies of the clipping and saying, I've waited all my life for this program. And this was in the summer of 1996. We had a class in the fall, um, and we've never looked back. No, you haven't. I mean, I'm thinking it's hard to believe it's been 20 years. Um, how has the program changed and grown over the years? I know there's other universities across the country now doing similar programs. I think you guys created a model for for oh, others. We, we so we did something that I think we didn't realize we were doing it. Um, we were very very lucky at NYU to be able to do something like this because it was in a completely new field. And the reason we were allowed to do it was that everybody was feeling really sorry for us because this big program was being taken away, and this was an opportunity to try to create something that would fill that gap. Um, and what we didn't realize was that we were creating, I mean, we knew right away that we couldn't call it gastronomy. Something like that wouldn't work um, in an academic institution, but studies would, because universities have many, many programs with the word studies in them, ranging um, from French studies to animal studies or environmental studies or whatever. There are lots and lots of programs. So that would fit into that model. And even though hardly anybody was convinced that food studies was a real thing that anybody would pay any attention to, what do you mean you're going to study about food? You know, I mean, people just couldn't believe it. But they gave it a chance, and we were able to hire a faculty member, Amy Bentley, uh, who's a historian, to come in and lead the program and um, help determine its academic content and bring other people in. And over the years, we've had lots and lots of students, so we have faculty, uh, and have built up the program so that it now has tracks in food systems and food culture. And it created a model for universities all over the country and, in fact, all over the world to follow. And there are now food studies programs or their equivalent in just about every university that I visit. I just see them everywhere. So that's really been exciting. Very exciting and a visionary in seeing that there was that need and the interest and and it how how it's grown up obviously is is proof of that. Um 
it's incredible. And I am, I am very grateful to be one in someone who was one of the first to, to be a part of it. Um, it is what, what drew me to move to New York. I was living in Chicago at the time. So um, I, give, I give you a lot of credit. What do you, uh, your role now at, um, at NYU, what, like, well, maybe we could just go with, like, what's a typical day in the life right now for you? Well, I'm on sabbatical this year. Oh, okay. So, um, so I'm not sure it's typical, but I write at home in the morning. I'm working on a new book, and I usually put in two or three hours of writing almost every morning. Um, and then I come in, and this afternoon I had meetings. I'm talking to you. I've talked to a couple of reporters. Um that's how it goes. And I deal with email all the time. It's the bane of my existence. Yeah, well well true. And I, I mean you've you've written you've written many books and so that I mean to take I find with writing I need that to get some quiet time or to it's a different it's a different thing. It's an escape from the, the everyday um emailing and obviously at a university with all the, the teaching and the, the students that that you're involved with. So that makes sense. <laughs> And um, on that note, we're going to take a little break. Uh, we're going to come back and talk more with Marion. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio. Music for this commercial break is brought to you by Rectech. And this track is called Dues Paid. This episode is brought to you by One House. At One House, we noticed that most serious chefs and managers don't hang out in brightly lit offices, so we go out in the fields to gather the best talent wherever they may be. We meet and talk to them, like humans used to do back in the day. We are the people people. Our talent sourcing covers salaried dining room, kitchen, and corporate professionals. We thrive in Michelin-starred, James Beard, and mom-and-pop environments alike, from coast to coast. Drop us a line at one-haus.com or at info at one-haus.com for our confidential, up-to-date, and relevant career options, or if you're an operator seeking a culinary or management-level pro. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Mary Nessel, Paulette Goddard, Professor of Nutrition and Food Studies and Public Health at NYU. So, Marianne, let's talk a bit about all these books you've written, these amazing books. Has there been, has there been one that was a, a particularly favorite subject to cover or something? Um, Oh, you're you're asking me to choose between my children. I know. I know. It's not fair. Um, Food politics was the first one, and or the first one in this series. I actually had written a book in 1985 about nutrition for medical students, but it kind of disappeared without a trace. Um, But food politics came out in 2002. It's gone through two subsequent editions. Um, It's still being used in classes, Um, and it's. I mean, again, I didn't realize that it was going to be uh, something that would end up being 
a classic in, in that it was the first book that really talked about the effects of food industry marketing on diet and health. And up until that time, there was very little discussion of the food industry's influence on what people ate, what food choices were considered a matter of personal responsibility. And nobody really was talking about how food industry marketing had anything to do with that level of personal responsibility. Um, and I had become, you know, I was tired of going to meetings about childhood obesity where everybody was blaming mothers for their kids being fat as if these kids weren't being raised in a society in which food companies were putting millions of dollars or billions, actually, into marketing directly to children. And so I wrote the book to highlight that and point attention to it and talk about all of the different ways in which food companies attempted to change the environment to protect the sales of their products. And that's really what food politics was about. And the subsequent books have followed up on various themes on that. So I have a book about food safety and biotechnology. I have one on dietary advice for the general public that's organized around supermarket choices. Um, I have a cartoon book. I really love that one um, called Eat, Drink, Vote that's food politics light, actually. And the most recent, I have a book about calories. Um, and one about uh, the most recent one is soda politics, taking on big soda and winning. And the end win and winning part turned out to be prophetic because um, last night's election um, had four, there were four cities that were voting on soda taxes and the taxes passed in all four of them. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> um, there's, there's just a lot. Um, I'm, my head is, my head is wrapping up all around all of this, um, with, with, with what's something in our food system today. That's like your biggest concern. Are we, are, is, is the soda where you're focusing a little bit now? I mean, it's, well, that's, that's a silly thing to say. I know it's, there's so many topics, um, well, the new book is about how is a, is about how food and what the food industry is doing to try to recruit nutritionists and nutrition researchers to produce um, opinion and evidence that supports uh, the kinds of foods they're producing as healthy. So it's about conflicts of interest in food and nutrition research and practice, and uh, and that's that's the current project. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, everything you're, everything you do and touch on and bringing these things to our attention, um, it, it's so important. Uh, and I, I just, I feel everyone needs to go out and get all of, all of your books and, and the, and the cartoon book. Um, I love that you brought, you're bringing something a little, I guess, lighter away for people to approach these topics. I have a, a, a some loaded questions from my guests, um, on the, that were on my show last week on episode 122. I had on Todd Arkey, the co-founder of Seamless, and Rowan Marley, the founder of Marley Coffee. And Rowan's question is, what's up with GMOs? And um, I was looking on your on your website, and you, uh, you blog about these topics a lot, and on food politics, and there are a lot of articles on, on GMO, GMOs that have come up. I saw the most recent was GMO crops not fulfilling promises as predicted, alas. So um, 
I, his question's a little vague with what's up with GMOs, so you could take it from there. Well, they also are having a 20-year anniversary, um, and I was on the food advisory, the FDA's food advisory committee in 1994 when they were approved. And one of the, you know, it's it's one of these awful situations where you just sit here and think, I told you so. Um, because there were four of us on that committee who were consumer representatives, and we laid out for this advisory committee what the reaction was going to be to GMO foods if they didn't label them. I mean, we were arguing very forcefully for labeling. We said, if you label, um, people will have a choice, and they can make their choice. And yes, there will be some people who choose not to, but if you don't do that, everybody's going to wonder what you're hiding. And there's going to be a lot of paranoia and suspicion um, about the products, and it's going to cause a big problem. And I, my only surprise is that it took this long. Um, I would have thought that these kinds of battles would have come up much, much earlier. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know what to say about it. There's still, you know, as far as I can see, the products that are being produced are reasonably safe. Um, that's not the primary consideration for me. For me, the primary consideration is who controls the food supply and who decides what people eat. Um, and this is an issue of monoculture. It's an issue of using chemicals in the food supply. Um, and the industry rhetoric about these foods being essential to feed the growing world's population are clearly not backed up by data in the way that you would expect them to. But that was true from the very beginning. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a... Uh... I'm, I'm, I'm going to pass on my comment on that and just move on to the other question, which is another tricky one. Because, So Todd wanted to know, how do you know when to buy organic or local fruit? And I'll even add to that, how do you know, or, I mean, or regular, and I'll add to that local, um, which is also another topic I know you've, you've written about. Yeah, I mean, I like local foods because they taste better. They haven't yeah. been transported 3,000 miles over a period of two weeks. Um, so that's an easy one. I go to farmer's markets every time I can. I grow a lot of my own food, um, and the, or at least in the summer, I grow a lot of my own food. Um, and I even have food growing on my terrace in Manhattan. The, um, so that's the local part, and it's also organic because I'm not spraying it with anything, um, although I do occasionally have to pick hornworms off the tomatoes. I don't like doing that. The... Um, um, the organic whenever there's an opportunity to buy it. Um, you know, I have enough money so I can afford them. It's not an issue for me. I don't eat that much, so I don't buy that much, and I certainly can fit it in the budget because the organic is a production value that I believe in. I think it's really important to grow food with as few pesticides as possible, and the organics have fewer harmful pesticides than conventionally grown crops. Um, what was the other one? No, local, I guess I guess he was organic, and what was well, the other I, one? I I I I was I was seeing some articles online between like when people are confused between whether they should buy organic. Or local, and I, I, think I truly buy the one that tastes better. Yeah, I truly, I, I'm with you with 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 local. I think that's it's very important to to support 
uh, everyone in the local community. And with the, I guess he was wanting to know, I guess when you're in the supermarket and I'm, I'm visualizing like there's a lemon and it's there's an organic lemon or there's a regular lemon, which should he be buying? The one that he thinks is going to taste better. Okay. <laughs> Easy. You know, yeah. if he can afford it. If he can't afford right. it, then he has to pick the cheapest one. Yeah, I, I I hear you. I think I think it's I think people still just look at look at organic and and yeah aren't sure. But um, even though I don't know, I think this this is a complicated. They're all complicated issues in a, in a sense. But you're right. They should buy. We should buy what tastes better and and support support local and all that good stuff. Um, so what what you. You have your you're working on this new book now. What's your what your sabbatical is all for this year that you're mm-hmm. it's for the whole year. And then what happens in 2017? And then I retire. Oh, you gonna gonna move or you just? And I just... haven't decided what I'm going to be doing after August 2017. Um, but I'll certainly still be around and still doing some work at NYU. It's just not clear what that will entail. Okay, so we'll stay tuned. I'm sure you'll you'll keep in touch. I will indeed. All right. So we're, we're going to take another break here, and we're going to come back, and we're going to play my speed round game and talk some industry news. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Music for this short break is brought to you by Rectech, and this track is called Torchlight. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Baer. My guest today is Marion Nessel, and it's time for my speed round game. So, Marion, what this is is I'm going to name a couple things, and it's a, a preference situation such as chocolate or vanilla, and you just pick your favorite. Oh, all right, I can do that. I'm sure you can. So I'm sure you're going to be great at this. Okay, so here we go. Eat in or eat out? Oh, eat in. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Oh, you're going to have to say that again because I couldn't understand it. Oh, sure. We're talking about drinks. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Uh, How about um, Soda Stream Fizzy Water? Okay. Love it. I have one of those. (laughs) Tasting menu or a la carte? Oh, a la carte. Otherwise, it's way too much food. <laughs> okay. Small plates or large plates? I can't hear you again. Small? You're coming oh. through very garbled. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, sometimes difficulty with phone. Can you, how's this? Small plates or large plates? Oh, small plates. Okay. Communal table or chef's counter? What was the first one? Communal table. Communal table, chef's, uh, chef's counter. Okay. I like watching them. Yeah, I do too. Tipping 
or all-inclusive charge? Oh, all-inclusive, please. Okay. Uh, A couple more. Teaching or writing? Oh, I can't decide. I want to do both. Okay. You You can have both. I don't mean to make your give you an unfair question again this one this one might be tough for you too i'm not sure super size me or food ink oh i can't decide between those they're both wonderful it's apples and oranges and you were in them both right no i was not in food ink oh okay there was something in a bio i read that said said you were so that yes well it was false okay (laughs) not everything actually i was interviewed for it but i ended up on the cutting room floor and the director doesn't remember interviewing me it must have been (laughs) just an awful interview no how uh, no that is not they made a mistake then (laughs) i don't know he has no memory of it at all i remember standing out on the street in los angeles and being filmed but he does not Okay, well, in that case, I'm giving it to supersize me, even though I'm not playing this game. But <laughs> all right, okay, um, two more: cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Manhattan or Brooklyn? I live in Manhattan, but I was born in Brooklyn. Okay. However, however that that is that that's that's fair. So that's the game. You win. That- <laughs> you went, is it possible to lose? Not in my game. Not in my game. It's, uh, it's I like games like that. Yeah, it's it's been it's fun hearing hearing people's responses and who gets stuck on on which ones. Uh, it's uh-huh. interesting. I can imagine. Yeah. So you're very good. Okay. So industry news can't not mention that today the election results came out. Even though I typically talk about food industry news. So I'm going to tie it in with on Grub Street today. uh, There's an article here how celebrity chefs are coping badly with with news of Trump's presidency. This was by Clint Rainey. And there was just they just summed up some tweets. And the one the one that I guess I I like the best. And it was Rene Redzepi, who's chef in Copenhagen, tweeted waking up in Copenhagen to to an inbox full of American job applications. Um, <laughs> oh, this is like Canada's Canada's website um, for immigration crashed last night. Yeah, I saw that too. Um, well, I feel I don't know. I know, I know for me and most most everyone that I, I'm connected with um, is not super happy with these results so that's kind of an understatement i don't know most people i know were were voting for hillary so um i think uh we're all we're all a little surprised and um gonna you know move forward and see see but what's your what's your take i think we have to move forward and see okay yeah well so that was that was that was that news today. We'll we'll move on to another news story. Um, food and Wine magazine covered how Anthony Bourdain is producing a documentary on food waste, and this was by article by Jilly Houston or Houston. I'm sorry if I'm saying her name wrong. So this is cool because um, he's doing a documentary in wasted. The story of food waste, which I think is a, a big topic that's important to be covering, and um, 
and Anthony Bourdain has a huge following, and uh, I think it will be a, a great, a great film. And he's fun to watch. He is fun to watch, and it's said he's going to be collaborating a bit with some of the culinary powerhouses. They called them. They got Massimo Bottoro and Dan Barber, who. Uh, had his wasted pop up last year, which I went to, and it was fabulous. Did you Did you go to that, Marion? I did. I did. Did you Did you think it was fabulous too? I liked some <laughs> of the food. I didn't like all of it. Okay. Um, and I, I was surprised by how um, how my taste was influenced by thinking about what it was, and in particular, uh, there was the dumpster salad. I had and, that, And yeah. it was served with an um, iPad with a picture of the dumpster. I couldn't eat it. Oh, why? Oh, because of the picture? Well, well just the idea that you were eating something out of a dumpster was so um, <laughs> discouraging. Um, but I, So that, didn't, that really didn't work for me, and I was really interested in how much I was influenced by that. Um, I mean, really strongly influenced. On the other hand, the veggie burger that was made with um, leftover carrot and beet pulp from juicing was absolutely delicious. And he has kept it on the menu and served it in many other times. I think it's wonderful. Oh, wow. I, I, I didn't have that, that and I remember um, it, it getting rave reviews and, and people liking it, so... I have to try it at some point. Um, yeah, I just thought the whole way, the whole concept, and the way, the way they put it together, and that they had explanations of of where these food products came from. To me, I thought it was it was an education and a little. Um, oh yeah, I you thought know. it was terrific. I I also went to a New York Times conference at Stone Barns the following year, in which he served that menu to. Uh, to the guests who were there. And that was very impressive, too. Yeah, I'm sure. So, well, we'll have to stay tuned for this movie. It's coming out next year. And, um, yeah, um, I think it's a good thing they're doing it. And on that note, we're going to take one more break. I'm going to come back and do my solo dining experience. And then we're going to do the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Music for this short break is brought to you by Shadowbox, and this track is called Let's Not. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, it's at Fowler & Wells. Here's the rundown. The location, 5 Beekman Street at the Landmark Beekman Hotel, New York, New York. The concept, a new American restaurant featuring classic New York dishes that were popular at the turn of the century, prepared with a modern interpretation. 
the chef and owner, Tom Colicchio of Crafted Hospitality, and executive chef Brian Hunt. Why did I go? Because this is a hot new opening and venue, and I'm a fan of Tom's. My experience. On a cold, rainy night, I made my way down to the Beekman, planning to grab a bite in the bar area. But when I arrived, I was told the bar was not serving food because the restaurant area had just opened. So I opted for a white tablecloth experience for one. Service was warm and inviting. What did I get? Hamachi with sea urchin and matsutake and warm lobster salad with marinated hen of the woods and arugula. My take. The fish was fresh with the uni. The fresh fish with the uni and the mushrooms was a really nice combination. The lobster was perfectly cooked and it felt like comfort food, although it was fairly light. The ambiance, an impressive space with handsome brick walls, stained glass windows, combining polished vintage details with industrial elements. It's located on the ground floor of the hotel by its stunning multi-story atrium. The whole space is really worth checking out. Perfect for a business dinner or perhaps a third date. Interesting tidbit, Chef Colicchio named the restaurant after a couple phrenologists who used to work in the building as one aspect to preserve the property's history. Personal fun fact, this past weekend I helped celebrate a significant birthday milestone for my dad and another another lovely crafted hospitality restaurant. It was at River Park, and they did an amazing job. The cost... $45.80, that's not including tax and gratuity, but it is including a 15% discount, which the restaurant was giving as they were still in preview mode. Would I go back? Yes, I would. I'd like to try breakfast or lunch next time. Their website is fowlerandwells.com. Marion, have you uh, been down to the Beekman Hotel? I haven't, but I'm looking forward to going. Yeah, it's a really spectacular, spectacular space. Very, very cool thing happening downtown. So, okay, so it's time for the final question. Next week, my guests are Joey Capanero, chef and owner of the Little Owl and Little Owl the Venue Market Table and the Clam. Those two, he he's with um, as. Well, it's the co-ownership because my other guest is Mikey Price. He's the executive chef and owner of Market Table and The Clam. So, Marion, can you ask a question for Joey and Mikey? Um, they're opening what kind of a restaurant? I'm sorry, again, it was very difficult to hear you. Oh, you know, no problem. They're not, they're, they're not opening a place, but they have several restaurants, and a few of them they own together. Um, Market Table and The Clam are, are oh. both, they both run. Well, I have two. I have two questions about restaurants. One is, what is the noise level? Um, because I don't really enjoy going to restaurants that are very noisy, and most are. Um, and my other question is, are there? Will there be small plates for people who don't want to be presented with vast amounts of food? Okay. I will. <laughs> this is this comes. This I should add maybe a question in my speed round about noise. Do you like noisy restaurants or not? <laughs> but um, I, I, I will. People evidently do, but I'm not one of them. Yeah, no, I find I find restaurants, especially these days, are beyond beyond loud, and um, it's a problem. So I, I hear you on that. And there's a pun in there. I hear you on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah great i will find out and um 
yeah, they both their all their restaurants. I I I, I like a lot, and there they will be fun to have them both on. So um, that will be next week, and um, that is the show. So, Marion, thank you so so much for coming on today. I'm I'm in awe of you. Um, you you just you're just incredible. You're you're just I, I here I am speechless. I just your whole career, all the books you've written, everything you've you've done at NYU, teaching students, starting food studies. It's just so impressive, and um, I just I'm just glad to know you. So, thank you so much. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it, and this was fun. Oh, good. I'm glad. So sorry we had a little difficulty connecting, but uh, we made it through. So um, my guest today has been Marion Nessel, Paulette Goddard Professor, Nutrition and Food Studies and Public Health at New York University. You can check out her website is foodpolitics.com, and NYU's website is steinhartnyu.edu. You should follow her on, on Twitter at Marian Nessel and also NYU Steinhardt. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. And you can always find our shows archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks to my fall's season sponsor, One House Hospitality Headhunters. Their website is one-house.com, Twitter, one underscore house, and Instagram, one house. That's O-N-E-H-A-U-S. Thanks always to my engineer, Pierre. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with another live show. Till then, have a good one, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. See what's down that road. Ain't gonna see nothing